0: John Beecham, CEO of uh, TORAC Capital Partners. If you're in the private lending space, uh, especially on my side of the fence as a lender, um, and if you have any presence at conferences in this space, you know TORAC, uh, you probably also have run into Mr. Beecham here as well. So thank you uh, for flying down here, I know you had, a big reason to be in Greenville, and it wasn't the podcast, but I appreciate you carving
1: out time. I really do to, to come here and chat with me. Well, thanks for having me here at Dalton. It's uh, a lot of fun. I love Greenville. It's a beautiful city here, um, and uh, it's not often I find myself in Greenville. So I'm very excited to come in here. And I was last here, I think, uh, about five years ago. Actually, when we were doing business with Lima One, and uh, it's just so wonderful to see this company have grown. I mean, I think there was like fifty people when I was here last time, and. and same, same facility, but massively larger. And so, all the success that Lima's had over this years is really great to see.
0: Yeah, I know you uh, and your firm played a big role in that uh, success uh, during those years. And uh, yeah, I know it's been great that we've all been able to stay in touch on the conference circuit and uh, we'll get you back down to Greenville more often. And we got to get up to your neck of the woods when it gets warmer. Uh, but walk me through, you know, I. I, being a fan of this space and, and having been around you a bunch, uh, have a good grasp of your background, but I think it's really important for listeners to uh, kind of get a, a view of that. So walk me through your time at uh, you know, Deutsche Bank through, uh, you know, through today and just that journey.
1: Sure, um, well, I've, I've, as probably many people, I sort of didn't expect to end up in this job, but I sort of went, went through a, a path and a series of choices. I you know, graduated from college, I worked in investment banking, uh, covering insurance companies and banks, actually. So financial institutions related, uh, but not anything to do with mortgages in particular. Um, Then uh, later in my career, I actually had a chance to go buy a company for Deutsche Bank. Uh, That was a a multifamily mortgage company. Um, So advised Deutsche Bank internally on that acquisition when I was a banker at Deutsche Bank. Um, And that was really cool. So after that, I got to learn uh, all about real estate and mortgages. So joined the commercial real estate group. Um, and started doing large amounts commercial real estate lending. Um, when I was there at Deutsche Bank, uh, I was the new person in the real estate group, so I didn't really have a real estate background at that time. And so I would do everything that was kind of a little bit more esoteric, a little bit more unusual. So I wouldn't do a beautiful building here. It's an office building in, in Greenville. I wouldn't do a loan in this building, but I would do cold storage centers or casinos or restaurants. or Things that are a little bit different and a little bit unusual mm-hmm. um, when I was there. Uh, Throughout the crisis, um, I worked. Uh, my, my last loan was a large loan to a casino company. So, lent to the casino company. Really great timing in, in, 2000 and, uh, in uh, two, two th- 2006, right before the financial crisis. It closed in 2007, so that didn't go so well. So, i ended up learning a lot about bankruptcy
0: <laughs> workouts
1: and other things that are, um, you know, really really useful. Actually, I learned a ton in that process. Um, also, a lot about Vegas casinos. Whole different whole different podcast. <laughs> Um, but then after that, actually, kind of more relevantly, um, then in like 2012, I was still in the commercial real estate group at Deutsche Bank, and uh, I started getting calls from uh, Lurinary and Blackstone in the same month um, saying, we want to do something that's kind of different. Uh, we want to go buy uh, single-family houses. Okay. I've never heard of, at that time, actually, like companies or institutions owning single-family properties was really never heard of it It hadn't been done uh, what do you want to do we want to buy them at foreclosure auction uh, we want to go renovate them and we want to operate them as rental portfolios and that was the first time in, in you know that' March of 2012 that I ever heard of that I'm like this is really something I mean at that point you know the uh, financial crisis just happened you know, housing prices were just at the very beginning starting to tick up a little bit um, but it was still a pretty tough time in this country and to see uh, private equity come in and scale. And uh, really wanted to go invest in this asset class, it was really great. And so I built up a team with the Deutsche Bank uh, to start financing those companies um, mm-hmm. with uh, loans that we were given from, from Deutsche Bank uh, to finance their basically, you would call them now a fix and flip.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: didn't even know the term actually at the time, but like it was effectively fix and flip on a massively institutional scale, it would have like eight to 10,000 properties, all of which we bought all over the country. Uh, we're finance, so, so uh, we did that first loan for Invitation Homes in October 2012, um, and then just started. We're kind of the sexy guys, because we start figure out how to do this, mm-hmm. um, and so we started doing it again and again. So we got uh, Apollo and Progress Residential, uh, Five Ten Capital, and many other big private equity sponsors came to us. Ended up doing about five billion dollars worth of lending in about a year. It's just crazy, <laughs> um, especially yeah. back then. <laughs> that was a lot. Yeah. After after two billion, uh, they get two billion. They made me write a letter to the CEO of Deutsche Bank, uh, promising them that uh, I would be able to figure out how to securitize this. <laughs> <laughs> a <nice> IOU. <laughs> I really I really mean it. I hope. I promise. Um, and then uh, after that, they said you got to sell the rest of it. So we had syndicated out to all the other banks and uh, you know everywhere on Wall Street that buy this stuff. Uh, then in 2013, I went to the agencies. Um, and said, hey, we want to go get this stuff rated. And they had no methodology. If you want to go with the rating agencies, they don't just rate things. I mean, they have to have a, a criteria and a process and established set of guidelines of how they're going to rate any asset class. And they've never done this for our asset class or any kind of single family rental properties. Um, and so we spent about a year uh, educating them and then on the process, um, ultimately getting uh, you know, Moody's and uh, Kroll and uh, Morningstar to agree to rate it. Um, and then structure the first ever securization of single family rental loans um, in uh, really right about November, 2013. Um, so that moment was a crazy moment. So I'm, I'm a securization guy. I've done a lot of Wall Street things. Normally when you sell bonds, you're in a room and, you know, maybe the biggest ever roadshow Mini ever had has like roadshows when you're going out and selling bonds. I would have, uh, you know, five people in the room. We had like... 270 people at the Invitation Homes Roadshow meeting in, in 2013. It was like standing room only. We had like bouncers at the door, stopping people from getting in. It was, it was, it was I'm like, yeah, does everyone know this is not the Google IPO? This is like, <laughs> <laughs> we're just selling bonds here. But it, was, it just went to show the the appetite from institutional investors to get access to the class, the excitement about something new, and getting involved in this was really, really huge. Um, so then I left, uh, like, you know, we got something good here, I forgot how to rate this. So I left uh, Deutsche Bank and founded a company called B2R Finance. Mm-hmm. Um, a gentleman named Jeff Tennyson, who was actually my, uh, my partner and uh, chief operating officer and president of the company as well. Um, so that was great, worked work with him for a long time. Uh, that was a company that would do uh, portfolio loans on rental properties. Uh, so it wasn't one rental property at a time, but we would do five, 10, 100, whatever it was, bundle them up, you know, make those loans as a group. Uh, then we'd hold the loans ourselves and would ultimately plan would securitize them. And so we did that. We structured multiple securitizations and you know, pioneered the first single single-family rental securitization. Um, and that was my time at B2R. So in about 2015, uh, I left B2R and wanted to go start something new. And so that's really the genesis of TORAC, um, which is my current company. So the idea behind TORAC is what we do, for, for your listeners, is we are a... Um, we're not a retail brand we're, we're effectively the wholesale capital um, in the whole value chain. Uh, so we partner, not formally with companies like Lima, but many other companies across the United States, the United Kingdom, to give them clear credit guidelines and credit criteria so they can go out and make loans, knowing that we're gonna be there as a consistent and reliable capital partner for them. Um, and then we acquire those loans on a flow basis. So they make the loan then they sell them to us and we'll pay them the loan proceeds and they'll be able to make another loan and then grow their business that way. Um, so that's the idea behind Torak, and you know this space that we're in right now um, of uh, called bridge lending. Um, really, at the time, was untouched by institutional capital. Right. I mean, there was almost no money in this space. There was no one. It was people calling themselves hard money lenders. It was it had this sort of taint of almost being like payday lending or something that wasn't really really established or accepted institutionally. Um, And so there's really no institutional capital in the space. We're the first people to really come in and scale and provide that capital to the lenders. And that's, it's been a great, great story since then for us.
0: Yeah, Yeah. it's crazy that this space is really 10 years old, you know, probably at max if you stretch it out. And like you said, when institutional capital, you being at the, the cutting edge of that in 2015, that was seven years ago. So it's, it's, and I remember when you came to the office, uh, I was a wee little boy, maybe a year and a half, two years out of college, I <laughs> was called into the room, I vividly remember sitting downstairs in the conference room, talking to you, and I was nervous out of my mind, because we, we hadn't had, you know, I was within the walls of Lima at the conferences, but uh, I got a big, like, hey, completely honest, transparent with these guys. Uh, you know, I was, it was impressed upon me the importance of this, so I was like, all right, all right here we go. Like, <laughs> don't let me screw this up for uh, everybody else here at this company. Uh, but yeah, you've really been a vanguard in, uh, in starting this. And, and you talked about uh, consistency and reliability. And as you look at our space right now, and this is the broader mortgage industry, but just looking at our uh, niche in the BPL space, uh, it, it's rocky. You know, you hear of shops. Drastically reducing staff over the last few months, plenty of shops going out of business or on the verge of going out of business. Uh, you know, what are you seeing through that kind of, you know, quasi war zone that's going on right now?
1: Yeah, well it's it's been a it's been a rough year. So I, I like to you know, and I like to say that I hope we have we have a tough period. We're supposed to have like five to seven years of easy times. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like we had COVID, which is really a horrible year, it's 2020. 2021 was a great year for our industry in 2022. It was pretty rough and looks like 2023 is gonna be rough as well. Yeah. Um, so we're definitely going through a tough time. I mean, we're, we're seeing macroeconomically, I think everyone knows this, you know, and we're, we're recording this in the middle of November of uh, 2022, but massive rate increases. You know, we've had 75 base points, uh, rate increases at the FOMC meetings regularly. i uh, likely be another 50 base points in, in uh, next month uh, in uh, December. Um, that's been the most rapid you know, piece of rate increases that's happened in, frankly, almost everyone's professional lifetime. You got to go back to the you know, late, late, uh, late 70s, 80s to see any kind of comparables. <clears throat> and when that happens, that means that you know, rates have adjusted. Uh, borrowers have to adjust pretty rapidly. A lot of borrowers are saying, hey, the rates are too high for me to find good deals right now. Um, and so the, deals, the deal volumes reduced across the industry. And that's led to a reduction in volumes across the entire industry. Um, you know, and lenders in particular are particularly affected by that because, you know, ultimately lenders make their money by making more loans and getting points and fees and, you know, it's really a pro loan sort of system. And when that loan volume reduces, it, it hurts the entire industry. So we've seen a lot of people have trouble. We've seen some layoffs in our space. Um, and, uh, it's been definitely been a tough time for people, but I think, I think, unfortunately I think we're, we're in it and it feels like it's going to be this way for. Know, some reasonable period of time, I think, uh, before we get out of this.
0: Yeah, you and I uh, have the pleasure of being part of the MPLA, the National Private Lenders Association, and we had a meeting in Vegas two weeks ago, yep. somewhere around there, yeah. Uh, and the sentiment was pretty consistent that, you know, we're in the rough patch right now, in the thick of it. It's going to continue probably at least to sometime in the tail end of next year. Uh, And then maybe, perhaps tail end of next year, we see the clouds break. Is that, you know, this is all reading the tea leaves and anybody's guess, but you're perhaps better positioned than most to read the tea leaves. So, uh, you know, the Oracle, Beecham, what say you? Do you think that's kind of your best guess at uh, when the clouds are gonna break?
1: Well, you have to define a little bit what you mean by the clouds breaking, because a lot of people ask that question, they're like, are we going back to the way it was in January? And that's not going to be for a very long time. Um, I think, I don't even know when that's going to happen, but I think we're going to be at a period of higher rates, a period of higher rates going to stay for a pretty consistent period of time. I think we're going into a period where housing prices are going to be under pressure we're going to see housing, in some markets have already seen it, uh, that I think that's probably going to continue and so will certainly going to continue next year. We're going to see housing price declines uh, in a lot of MSAs across the country uh, all those things are going to cause, um, you know, more difficulty and pain for our borrowers and our industry as well. So that's the reality of the macro environment we're in. Um, I think if I were to pick a date, uh, you know, Halloween next year, yeah. um, it's it's not it's not short. I mean, it's going to be some period of time. We need to work through this. We need to get to a point where rates are stable uh, and clearly stable for a period of time. The capital markets start to function better than they're function, functioning. It's been an orderly process, but you know, come back and sort of function a lot better. And once we have that, you know, some stability, and you know, by the way, it's not gonna be the old rates, but it'll be a new a new normal. And then people get adjusted adjust to that. You know, housing prices will get to a new a new level that's you know, housing prices will clear. And then once we have some stability there, then people will get used to it and then we'll have a new normal. So I, I think it'll take that long to get to that new normal, uh, but that new normal will be a different level than what we've seen in the past, or certainly the recent past. I'm sure. I think with
0: any kind uh, of adverse event, adverse stretch of time there's always some silver linings and positives to look to. What do you think those are right now? You know?
1: Yeah, I think, I think, um, number one is, uh, you know, n- nothing like the, the, uh, economic cycle to really focus people on credit. Mm-hmm. Um, bringing us back to basics, uh, underwriting, uh, valuations, you know, double checking the valuations. I think there's definitely enhanced, you know, focus on credit and process procedure underwriting um, to make sure the loans are making as an industry are, are good and gonna perform even during a stress period. Um, so I think that's really good. I think the other thing that's really cool, I'll tell you, from Torx effective. You know, we're using this as an opportunity to spend a lot of time, a lot of money on actually value added technology. Yeah. Um, very, very cool stuff that we're doing um, in terms of simplifying the process, uh, simplifying the review process of loans, um, all the work that we do. Um, so lots of cool stuff can come out about that. So I think it's an opportunity for lenders to sort of look into their operations, say, Hey, maybe the volume's not as high as it was for, but can I use this as an opportunity to retool myself, to ask questions about how I process loans in the past. You know, is there a better way to do it? Can I invest in new systems or things like that? And when people aren't as busy as they were before, it's a great opportunity to think strategically about what's going to happen when we come out the other side of this.
0: Yeah. It's, very funny to hear you say that because uh, you know you can tell you and Jeff Tennyson, very similar philosophies and this is one of the crossovers uh, I was sharing with you before we press record that we had a directors offsite a couple of days ago and technology was the chief topic of conversation for next year it's technology and training and education for you know the 300 folks we have on staff here knowing that it's not. You know, it's not like covid where lending is going to go down to you know, almost zero for a few months we, you know continue to have healthy production uh, but what can we do whenever we're not busting at the seams as a company and as an industry and it's perfect timing whenever you're busting at the seams it's tough to advance deep technology projects change LOS do whatever you're doing revamp your CRM um, client portal things like that like now is the time to do that and Said this is this is cyclical. This is up and down. Um, talking about it before we press record. Like you, you have to have some thick skin. And if you, you know, if you're ready to look, pull out your hair and lose your mind whenever things start to dip, like maybe, yeah, maybe a different space might be might be the right fit. But it is, um, yeah, it's trying. But you have to have that global perspective of this yep. is the space, this is the way it's going to work. It's going to come back. It's not going to look the same as it did, but uh COVID was that was the first you know, I, I don't put COVID as a downturn or of a the shock yeah that's a good way to put it uh so this is my first you know what you would call it downturn uh, being part of it and you just have to have that foresight to know that you know I watched the big short after I signed my offer letter here and I was like oh no <laughs> like, <laughs> this is what am I when's this gonna happen again but it's just such a different environment and, it's part of the normal cycle. So there's some positivity there. Um, yeah,
1: no, just on tech. I mean, like, so the mortgage industry, especially our space is very antiquated, <laughs> very inefficient. We, we have a lot of manual processes, um, a lot of duplicative effort, a lot of wasted time. Um, just one example. I mean, just ask yourself and your listeners too, like if you run a mortgage company, if you're involved in this process, how many times from the time a borrower calls up someone in your company saying, hey, well, I want a loan, to when that loan is ultimately sold to a third party, to someone type in the address of that property? And that's something that probably, if you're honest, probably is getting typed in 20, 25 times across that process by different people, and they'll do it differently. They'll put California, they'll put CA, they'll put the capital, lowercase CA, yeah. like a lot, a lot of different variations on that. And mm-hmm. that's a lot of opportunity to just do it once, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of not you know, duplicate this effort, not have all these manual processes um, and just make the process much more efficient. So I think it's a lot. that's one example, but there's many more.
0: Yeah, that's a big one though. I think oftentimes, you know, efficiency gains are thought of as I have to do this massive overhaul of something and really it's just start picking away at how you can have gains. I, I lead a sales org and we just did a new phone system launch and we have a voicemail drop feature and I calculated just to get some buy-in what the average time savings of that's gonna be for a sales rep, it's like, hey, that's more time. Here's, I think it was 50-something hours a year it came out to It's so like if you can push all of your voicemails, virtually all of your voicemails through a couple of recorded ones you have, that's, great. that's 50-something hours per person more that you can call. That's crazy. It's <laughs> something, yeah, it's something so small that you know, it doesn't take a lot of effort or lift, and there you have some perfect time to focus on that. Uh, as we close up, and I'm not going to let you come in here just for one episode, we're going to get two episodes up and down, uh, but as we close up here, I want to talk through and just a, you know, a little elementary edu- education for me um, and hear your side of liquidity for lenders. Right? You have a lot of different options, banks and warehouses, secondary markets, and life insurance. I think those are three three big ones, but at a high level, walk me through those and and if you could add in kind of the current state and health of each just to orient me and everybody else.
1: Sure. Um, well, uh, maybe I'll start with the secondary markets first and then, uh, go, go through the other ones. So the secondary markets usually means, uh, selling your loans to someone like Torac or, or for us, it means accessing the capital markets. So we, we have been historically an active securitization company. Uh, we've done over, I think it's 12 different securitizations, totaling more than $3 billion worth of offerings including both bridge and, and term loan securitizations. Um, that market right now is, is pretty challenged. Um, when we just give people a sense, when we were, uh, did our first securitization on, on bridge loans, uh, probably the average coupon, or maybe the last one, like a year ago, uh, the coupon in that securitization would be you know, two and a half, 3%, uh, where we could issue those bonds. Uh, today, that's going to be 8% or, or about 8% if, if it's doable. Right. Um, so just at levels that honestly don't make sense and are not economic and it's, it's open, there's deal availability there, but not at levels that we can actually make money and originate loans that borrowers actually want to accept. So that market is in practice not available for us right now and not really a good, good source of liquidity. Um, similarly on the term loan side, uh, that market is open more, uh, but still not really providing the best execution. So I'd say that, that market is very troubled um, still working, but not uh, not the best excuse right now. The second is really um, you know banks and warehouse facilities. So we at Torarq are a very large borrower. I mean, our company basically we we buy loans and then we finance them in different ways. Um, right now, the bank market is a great market for us. Uh, we're actually accessing you know a lot of good bank debt um, from different banks around the country, uh, a lot of interest in, in financing us, so we're you know very fortunate to be overwhelmed with. Opportunities to borrow from banks, um, so that market is functioning for us relatively well. Uh, it is a real primary source of our liquidity now. Um, the third source is really life insurance companies, and, and life insurance companies um, are a great market. Um, they, they, there's times in the market cycle where they tend to be really great. There's times in the market cycle where they tend to be not so great. Right now, they're really good. Good uh, period of the market. Um, they especially like thirty-year uh, loans. Um, so DSCR loans and other kind of term loans that we're doing in our space, uh, tends to fit more with life insurance companies and they have long-term assets. So those long, long-term liabilities, those long-term assets fit well with them. Um, less, so, less interest in bridge loans, but I would say what's happened is when the, when the securization market is not as efficient, a lot of that deal volume actually went over to life insurance companies. And so what we're seeing is a lot of those life insurance companies are saying, I've already filled up my capacity I don't have any more, and so there's a finite amount of that capital available. Uh, that capital has been pretty efficient. Um, so I, I'd say that probably the most of our ranked them right now, it's probably banks number one, insurance companies number two, and you know the secondary markets are so definitely most trouble. It would have been actually the opposite a year ago. Interesting. Yeah, when things were booming, the good times. <laughs> yeah. Fair. So. Uh,
0: I enjoy, as always, uh, getting a chance to chat with you, and we talked about really the lender side of the fence, and I think on next week's episode, we're really going to dive into stuff that's actionable and applicable on the operator side, so I'm going to pick your brain from all angles. I can't thank you enough for taking the time and sitting down and chatting with me.
1: Great, well, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks, Sean. Thanks, everybody. All right, one down. How do you feel? That's awesome. That's good get two episodes out of them. Yeah. <laughs> get, get, get my money's worth out of each of them. Yeah, man,
1: they're called X. It could be a long run efficiency game. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Uh, Don't be too yeah, negative. Yeah, no, not <laughs> <much> <laughs> but accurate. <laughs> it's We're really like, bad, everyone's <laughs> firing. Delicate balance. I just walked to the DSCR floor. And empty. <laughs> no, I look pretty happy. No, I was. I was. Oh jeez, get out of here! <laughs>
0: it's a Friday before Thanksgiving. I'm shocked. We might we might have more salespeople here than underwriters here, uh, which is a, on, on Friday. It's a rarity.
1: Yeah, oh, no, it's, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually impressed. A lot of people are here. More than uh, Torak. Fridays are empty. Yeah.
0: I know you flipped around your camera Friday when uh, yeah, I was there. It. You, it was, I think, your assistant was there. That was about it.
1: Yeah, it's it. Mary's there. I'm there. Yeah, no one else. Yeah, <laughs> um, but we, we require people Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It's actually you know you pick a day. It's almost yeah. You know, that's kind of an interesting. I think we should roll that out. You get one day. And you pick
0: it. Yeah, it's been it's been good here. It's been good to give some flexibility, and we've uh, it's it's I appreciate the fact that it's so much easier on the sales side to manage remote activity. Than, you know, perhaps in other functions it can be, because it's very open-comment. How many calls, quotes, submissions, and funded other deals do you have? That, I
1: can tell you that- as well, long as have was tech. If you have tech and you're tracking it, you, yeah. know, you go in your system and say, hey, it looks like you didn't do shit all day. Yep, exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, even even though we have the one day a week, we're still, it's still a topic of conversation because on you know, the tech side, there's not a one-size-fits-all solution. I think an important piece is having a delegated authority to, here's here's the minimum viable standard from a corporate standpoint, and if directors want to have flexibility outside of that, you can. Uh, like you know your people the best, and someone who, like a couple guys on my team, Drew, Bowen, who are consistent high performers, to be honest, I don't care if they're here quarterly for the company party or company meeting, and on you know, the beach of Tahiti, the rest of the time, if they're hitting yeah, if numbers, your numbers, whatever. Yeah, it is. But it's, it's a
1: morale issue for everyone else. So you kind of don't have equal standards, and you kind of let people leave early, and other people treat differently. Maybe maybe you're a sales, and you're like, okay, get this level, and you go all you want. That's that's maybe a little more transparent, instead of fair. Yeah, um, but other departments don't have that sort of uh, a top producer kind of level that you can objectively identify. That's
0: it. It's like we, we live and die on leaderboards for everything. So it's. You know, you always know where you fall in the stack, and that's something that's pointed to. It's like, okay, if money is not your chief motivator, then autonomy, and me not being on your ass, and you getting, you know, hey, you're producing, I don't care how many calls you make, you can make 10 calls a day, and you produce 6 million a month, then, all right, let's talk about how we get to 7 and 8, but I'm not going to yeah. love you in the back of the head.
1: You're paying for yourself.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <There> you <go. laughs> All right. This episode, we'll keep it cruising. Uh, HPA inflation rents. So I'll just orient us to, uh, you know, just want to pick at some big features of the market, and it's all good topics. Yeah, wherever we can deep dive to. You mentioned uh,
1: to a Phoenix market, and uh, yeah, that particular Boise is like something. Boise uh, is like some yeah. weirdness there. It's, I, I want to, I want to ask you about poison. I don't know, it's like bizarre, I don't know what's going on there. It's something in the water or something. <laughs> They're all like, <laughs> put some chemical on there and they want to pick up the housing prices. Yeah, I don't, um, I don't get
0: it. Yeah. So we'll we'll unpack what we can unpack and We're know. certainly not going to get to the bottom of it. I will have a lot of insight, though. we don't want yeah. to <laughs> this, this, this is an odd... I don't know. I I won't say the word "landline," but all right, here we go. Just contest. Okay. All right. John Beecham, CEO of Torat Capital Partners, uh, joining me for another episode. I couldn't, couldn't have you come into the office and just do one episode. So I'm going (laughs) to steal more of your time and take another episode. You're too kind. Uh, Thank you for joining again.
1: Thanks thanks a lot, Dalton. Super happy to be here. It's a Great, great to be in Greenville and spend a lot of time at uh, Lima one here. Yeah. So uh, as we look at this week's episode, last week
0: we talked a lot about the lender side of the fence, what's going on with lenders, capital providers, uh, and really the formation of uh, a lot of this space, which as you noted is really 10 years old, really, in its, its current form. And if you look at it from an institutional standpoint, uh, you could argue that it's Know, a smaller time frame than that, so it's still a relatively young space, but uh, it has grown incredibly. in those, you know, depending on how you shake it, seven to ten years, uh, and it's here to stay, which is a good, exciting thing, and something that you know, I know, you, John Warren and John Thompson, our co-founders, whenever y'all were, you know, fighting the fight in the mid 20 you had to convince people that this is this yep. is an industry that is lasting. This is not a trade,
1: right? Absolutely. It took, it took a while actually to convince investors and the markets that uh, this is an asset class, just like residential lending, just like commercial lending. Uh, we sort of fit in the middle a little bit. Uh, we, the industry we're like, do we, are we really residential? Are we really commercial? We're sort of both. I mean, we do business purpose loans, mostly on residential properties. So it's depends on your perspective and how you think about it. But it's uh, the industry's come a long way. I mean, now we're accepted as a real asset class. Um, we are, an active securization market for asset class. There's many uh, competitors, many institutionally owned, like Lima One uh, lenders in the space, and so it's definitely come a long way and become a real, really accepted asset class, which is great.
0: Yeah, uh, that has been fun in my seven and a half years of being in the space uh, to be able to ride the uptick and getting a little bit of a dip and going through that. Uh, but it's it's all good. Like the the learning in this space being. In it throughout all of this growth has just been incredible, and I know if I, you know, not a lot of spaces that I could have gotten into uh, to see this and so much professional growth behind. So it's been it's been good and fun. Uh, Let's talk about some things from a a, you know market standpoint, and we'll we'll have some broad Q and A, and I want to touch on a couple of specific markets, and um, let's start with. I'll say home price appreciation, but that's probably not the right term to use right now, so correct me uh, and talk to me about home prices right now. Uh, they are in you know, really, I think most everywhere, probably a flat or declining yep. environment. So what's, what's causing that, I imagine a big part of it is the fact that there has been ridiculous home price appreciation over the last couple of years. Uh, if you, in January, or no, really March 2020, when the world stopped, if you would have said, hey, just wait a couple months and then home prices are gonna skyrocket. Yep, uh, yeah. No one thought that. that <laughs> so, so, So we, we know the story of uh, the up, 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 and you don't have to be in this space to know that. It's, I think, everyone knows the home prices have been up. It's been such a headline grabber. Uh, starting to come down. In uh, some areas, much more so than others. So talk to me about what, what's making some of the markets that are not coming down as precipitously, what's making those more stable markets? Uh, and, you know, what are some of the factors that you see leading to you know, ones that point to maybe more of a drop off the cliff than others?
1: Sure. Um, well, when I think about home prices, I think about three main drivers of housing prices in, in our country, frankly in any country. Um, you know, number one, I'll start with a good one and then we'll work our ways to the not so good ones. Yeah. But, the good one is um, supply and demand. I mean, you have a reality, it's a market. It's like any you know, the market. You have a certain number of people, you have population growth, uh, you have a need for new housing. Um, and so you have a number of buyers in a particular market, number of sellers, and, and there's going to be a clearing price that's, that's brought to bear in the market. Um, what we're seeing in our country is that we're massively underinvested in our housing stock for well over a decade since the financial crisis. Uh, Ground up construction lending is very limited historically in this country. Um, it's very hard to find new land. We have a lot of zoning rules and various barriers to actually building new housing, um, so that supply of housing hasn't caught up with the uh, you know uh, population growth over the past decade. So we have just a lack of housing. Um, that's not in every market, but that's in many markets across the country, and so that definitely is a positive. It's one real bright light in holding up housing prices. I would say what's happened today is even more even frankly, more of an almost artificial constraint on housing prices, because I'll tell you my, my home mortgage, I got at two and a half percent, uh, you know, year in you know, beginning of last year, um, obviously that's not available today. Um, it's 30 year fixed rate mortgage. Um, sort of looks crazy today, but it also means that I'm not alone. Many people have done that. And so it makes it really hard to go move out of your house, and go buy another house if your new mortgage is going to be 7%, which is probably the average rate today. Mm-hmm. Um, the amount of, you know, you're going from that 2.5% mortgage to a 7% mortgage, you're paying, I think it's something like 40, 45% more actual payment every single month to go make that mortgage payment. And that means that a lot of houses are just unaffordable. And it also means a lot of people aren't going to sell their house. So that also exacerbates the lack of supply issue because a lot of people just aren't going to move right now. Um, that also means the same people aren't moving, also aren't buyers, um, and so that's uh, it's just it's lack, lack, lack of transaction volume. So I think that's a really positive factor that's holding up, uh, you know, holding up housing prices. There's two two really bad ones. The one we just mentioned, you know, obviously rates are are high, um, probably seven percent average mortgage rate uh, in the country. I'm I'm, I'm talking not a, a business purpose loan, but just a home loan for an normal human being. Right. Uh, that means you have to pay forty percent more payment than you would have, you know, a year ago uh, means you can't afford as much house. So that's definitely a big negative. Um, you know, people just can't afford to pay the mortgage, they can't afford to pay as much as they could have uh, a year ago, just because they don't make that much income. Exacerbate that with inflation. Um, and inflation has definitely, you know, made it harder for people even, you know, first you're going to buy food before you sort of buy a bigger house, right? So, you know, the cost of everyday living, uh, cost of um, energy, cost of gas, you know, all the things we know about have gotten significantly more expensive. So it's harder for people that have disposable income to be able to afford that house. You have both of those issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the third thing that's, um, uh, that's a, that's a pretty big deal. Um, I think is you have, um, uh, just, uh, you know, through, like, two they're, uh, they're through this yep. so Spider-Man. Oh, hey. and the third thing that's really a big deal right now, is really just the employment uh, situation in our country. So we are at peak employment right now, which is kind of weird, because we feel like we're going and we're in this pretty scary economic period. But the unemployment rate is extremely low. Pretty much everyone who wants a job can get a job right now in the country. Um, it means people feel pretty good about their employment prospects. You know, The Federal Reserve is increasing rates. Part of that is to reduce, frankly, reduce employment in the country, uh, reduce the uh, amount of people working. Um, that's going to cause uh, people to be less confident as we go forward into 2023 about their own employment prospects, probably higher unemployment rates, probably less wage growth than we've seen in the past. All those things, while now is good, are likely to get worse as you think through, through 2023, and they're going to make it more difficult. So I think when you take the balance of all these three things, you've got two really tough issues. You know, one that's pretty good, but I think the two tough ones are definitely going to outweigh the one that's good. And we're going to see home price declines over the course next year.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned supply, because in my mind, anytime I think about the health of housing, uh, that's a silver lining that I hold on to, because building, you know, overbuilding leading up to 07-08 crash, and then it just fell off the edge and never came back to even remotely appropriate levels. Uh, Then you had COVID, which just halted any building, um, permitting, everything for... You know, I think in most jurisdictions, at least six months. You just have lockdowns, nothing going on. Some major markets, much longer. Uh, so in a way, that supply issue, yeah, it's, it's not helpful from an affordability standpoint, but you, know, you could argue that it's keeping uh, home prices from just being a rock in a pond. So uh, a little bit of a silver lining there for what it's worth. Yeah,
1: and that's, you know, listen, we're not making more land in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, duh. Um, and we're not generally uh, liberalized. a couple states are exceptions, California's a great, great example, but our zoning laws are pretty restrictive, generally, across country And so it's hard to build more housing, so that's not going to change anything.
0: Yeah. Uh, a couple of markets that have caught my eye from a headline standpoint, uh, Boise, Idaho. That's one of the markets, and I'm gonna, uh, if I had to attach a word to the Boise market, from a numbers standpoint, it would be odd. Um, how how would you respond to my attachment of that word to the Boise Idaho Housing Market, knowing that it's a gorgeous area, uh, absolutely love it. One of my colleagues here lives out there, and it is beautiful, but from a numbers standpoint, it's odd, and
1: I can't figure it out. Uh, I'm not sure I have the answer to that question. It's I, I was in Boise, actually, a few years ago. It's a beautiful city, great, Um, You drive outside of Boise and there's endless emptiness. I mean, not far outside the city, it goes empty for a long time. So it's not like there's a lack of land in that area, which is normally what causes housing prices to really get on whack. Um, I'm not sure I know exactly what's going on in Boise, but it's definitely when we look at markets that are uh, troubled, higher risk, I mean, that really for us is right at the end of the spectrum of the highest risk market in the country. Um, There's others, I mean, uh, Las Vegas, uh, Phoenix, Nashville, um, other cities right now that seem uh, you know that's def- definitely in trouble and probably gonna have more uh, declines than, than other places in the country uh, they have also those tend to be places where the run-up has been higher as well so um, you see the northeast i think is actually relatively stronger um, than a lot of other areas of the country we haven't seen as much run up there um, during the last few years certainly has been good but not like the rest of the country um, and so probably uh less of the fall there as well so we feel like that's probably a little more stable than some of these other markets Uh, Probably a little more risky. Yeah, from an owner standpoint,
0: it seems like the you know again going to a little bit of of the reading of the tea leaves, but it seems that the pullback in home values uh, is still going to be uh, less than the last 24 months of run up that we had. So it seems like most markets are going to have values as we sit at any point over the next few months that are, are going to be higher than what they would have been if you would have had normal home price appreciation up there.
1: I think that's probably true. I mean, you should have a normal, I mean, it's not like we don't have people in the country who are working and the employment situation is good. So the underlying reality of home, the home dynamics are, are good From that standpoint, um, it's it's a rate issue. So it really is going to depend a lot around, you know, how long these rates stay high, uh, how long it takes to get to you know, some sort of different level. Um, but I think uh, I think it's definitely going to be a you know some declines, but probably not in below 2019 levels. Fair, fair. <clears throat> Excuse me.
0: So, looking, you know, put yourself in the shoes of an operator in the space, an operator, just a real estate investor uh, who has access to capital in the current period. Uh, you know, if you're Pick your shop up and go anywhere. Invest anywhere with you know, seemingly unlimited capital. What verticals are you getting into? You're looking at uh, rental, multifamily, rehab, new construction. Uh, so from a product standpoint, you know what do you think is most attractive right now? Uh, and then from a market standpoint, you know what markets are on the the other
1: end of uh, safety and security. Well, I, I think generally all real estate right now is just like, frankly, a lot of the asset investment opportunities across the entire economy uh, is, is definitely a riskier point than it has been in a long time. So I think almost all opportunities are less good than it would have been a year or two years ago. Um, that being said, uh, when you think about risk profile, uh, ground construction is always higher. Um, so that's you know, one of the spectrum uh, tends to be a longer time to get the project done. You know, more cost-failure variability in that, probably a little less certainty as to what the demands could be at the end uh, because you have a longer time when you start digging to when you actually sell the property. Um, so that's definitely the riskier end of the spectrum. Um, you know, short-term uh, flips, uh, you really have to be really careful about underwriting that deal to today's prices, not last year's prices, and also incorporate some sort of housing price decline into your models. So you're not assuming that you're gonna sell for whatever today's price is you're thinking ahead and thinking, okay, it's gonna take me a year to get done. You know, I need to go sell it after a year. Um, you also gotta think about inflation and cost inflation and wage inflation. And today's prices are not gonna be the same as the price you paid last year to get your roof done. Uh, so realize you, you make sure you're using today's prices when you're actually underwriting it. That being said, if you find the right deal and you're really careful about that, you're taking a margin conservatism on your prices you're taking account current inflation rates and the current current price of goods and services. You can find we see lots of people finding really attractive deals right now um, that they can go buy, renovate, and ultimately make profit on. So that segment, if underwritten carefully, with today's reality, uh, could make a lot of sense. If there are a hundred deals a year ago, it's probably forty deals today. But those forty deals are still pretty good deals. Um, so there's deals to be found. You've got to be a lot more selective in that space. Um, I think probably the safest end of the spectrum is you know, finding a rental property um, that's already leased up and you have rented place and immediately putting on a long-term loan on that. So you're not taking any risk between the time when you buy the property and when you're financing it. Mm -hmm. You can find a property that covers and the rent exceeds the interest payment by a reasonable margin. I mean, those those are great deals. And you can, you also get a lot of upside because if you're financing that with today's rate, um, you know, probably historically over time, that rate's gonna go down. So, you probably see a point in the next five to 10 years where that rate's gonna be a lot lower than it is now. So, you can refinance it out, which gives you a lot of upside opportunity for that. The second thing is on your rental properties, you're, you're the winner from inflation. Um, you know, yeah. just like every, everyone else is a loser, I mean, you're the landlord, so you're increasing your rents. So, if you lock in a fixed financing cost and you're able to increase your rents by five, 10% a year, you know, that generates a pretty attractive return for you as a landlord. So, I think that asset class if you're financing it the right way with long-term debt makes a lot of sense that's probably my favorite right now what's your
0: where would you peg a minimum viable debt service you see in our space some no debt service or sub one debt service uh products we my am I, am I
1: lender or my borrower here uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah let's, let's say two very different questions right yes uh, yeah i mean at lean one capital we you know we do not go to sub one we're know, have been uh, on, you know, compared to some in the space, uh, a little more conservative and I think to the benefit of, definitely to the benefit of us as a firm, and we like to think to the benefit of our clients, like we don't want to take back property ever based on, you know, the reality of large numbers, uh, we take back properties, we do many hundreds of loans a month and uh, it's, you know, just a cost of doing business, and part of doing business for us, but. Uh, you know, we would be happy with 0% default and just everybody pays the bills and everything's great. Uh, so we don't dip into that, uh, you know, what we think is a little risky proposition. So I guess uh, you, you teed it up for lender or operator, and I'll ask you to answer both. <laughs> That'll be difficult.
1: Well, uh, clearly, clearly from the borrower standpoint, I want to find a property that can cash flow and I'm borrowing a level that I'm able to pay my rent and have a reasonable cushion and margin of error on top of that. So I'd like to see a coverage of, you know, one, 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 two. I mean, that's in practice, hard to find right now at high leverage levels. Um, but I would personally just take, uh, what I would do is I'd put more equity into it. I would borrow less debt and make sure I have that debt able to cover at a reasonable lever, level, knowing I always have the opportunity later, if rates go down to refinance out that debt, you know, take more cash out later and sort of have that upside opportunity. So that's me personally, but I'm probably a little more conservative as a lender. Same same perspective, I and mean, we 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 really like to see uh, cash flow. We like to see good coverage on the, on the deals. Uh, we, our average DSCR is probably our, sorry DSCR on a rental rental loan where we're lending to a uh, borrower who has the property rented. and It's a thirty year loan. Um, you know that probably is about a one two one three you know coverage ratio historically. It's hard to find those deals now because rates have gone up so much. But we like, we like being that in the spectrum and having some reasonable coverage level. Um, if it's lower than 1.0, we've done those deals in the past, we wanna see a materially lower LTV uh, on those loans. Not a little bit, like 10, 15 points lower to compensate for the fact that you don't have coverage. Plus you wanna see a lot of liquidity from the borrower. Maybe they have an employment, uh, good employment income, maybe they have a lot of money in the bank. So they, there's actually a source for covering that, that shortfall on the property. Um, but we, we try to avoid those, and that's a pretty small portion of what we've done historically. Yeah, fair, fair.
0: Beach, uh, I always learn something when I chat with you, I truly mean that. Um, you, you're somebody who, you know, when I first got into the space in 2015, started going to conferences, started seeing you around, uh, and you, uh, John Hornick, uh, other folks in the space, uh, Tash, have been incredibly, uh, I think, kind, generous, impactful to me, and I've tried to soak up every nugget every morsel so I can. So I, uh, it's, you know, we get to see each other, but not often enough, and I really appreciate you coming to do this podcast, but uh, just being a good human, uh, and being someone who, uh, you know, just been there throughout the
1: years, and I appreciate you. It's great, well, thank you. It's, it's great to see young people like you come to the industry. Uh, have a ton of success for yourself and sort of grow up pretty, uh, pretty quickly and have a lot of advancement yourself. So congratulations on all your personal success and success of the one, uh, you've definitely done uh, that yourself right. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks, John. And we'll, uh, we'll get you back in here next time. You're in Greenville. Okay, awesome. Thanks a lot. Thanks everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.